Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our healer. Amen. This morning's gospel reading is a potentially controversial one. At least if you look at it on the surface and don't pay close attention to the details. Over the past week, as I was listening to BBC Radio 4, two things struck me as dominating from the broadcast. One was the commemoration of the 70th anniversary of the founding of the states of India and Pakistan, and also the huge loss of life, intention, and hatred along religious lines following the partition of the Indians of the continent. The other thing that dominated was Donald Trump and his apparent reluctance to condemn white supremacists involved in violent acts, including the Ku Klux Klan. And against this backdrop, we have this particular reading from the lecture this morning. If the controversy hasn't struck you already, have a listen to this segment of the debate from Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London, where some Muslims and Christians are discussing with each other. You're missing the part where he says, I do not pass the bread of the children to the dogs. Now we know clearly who the children are. The children are the children of Israel. And who are the dogs? Everyone else. That includes the Gentiles. Yes? So why does he call the Gentiles dogs? I mean, this guy is supposed to be the role model. He's supposed to teach you good manners. He's supposed to teach you something that is to respect everyone. Let alone a woman who's coming and asking and begging for his help. Now what does he call her? A derogatory term like dogs. To me, that is not befitting of someone who is a mighty messenger like Jesus. He's let alone a God as you believe. You see what I mean? Calling someone a dog who is not Jewish amounts to racism to some extent. Yes? And derogatory and insult to to bring racism. How can someone who is a role model insult someone who has faith in you, faith in your healing power? Yes? How can somebody insult by calling them a dog and their lives as a dog? So, how do we respond to this? Well, it's interesting, a number of Christian commentators will also say that Jesus seems to be initially prejudiced here and has somehow softened in his attitudes. Finally, he might know that she's described in Matthew chapter 15 um, or the Syrian Phoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. However, as you can hear from that particular segment of the exchange, that's just gone up in a little water with our Muslim brothers and sisters. There are a few things that we can say to make it not the nail on the head for uh, any sort of accusation that Jesus might be a racist, Jesus might be prejudiced, particularly towards Gentiles. And we look at this in the wider context of the Gospel. There are a number of instances, both before and after this account, it could be hard sometimes to see how things chronologically fit into the Gospels. Luke, as a former colleague at the University of Liverpool used to say, Luke's Gospel is logical, but not always chronological. And with John's Gospel with a similar structure. But if you take the order of events in Matthew and Mark um, as well, we have presumably beforehand Jesus meeting with the woman of the well, the Samaritan woman, and obviously engaging with her in a way that would seem controversial to the disciples at the time. 
So Jesus obviously wasn't prejudiced towards Gentiles in that instance, to non-Jews. Also, we have the example of the Gerasene demoniac, the man from the Gerasenes or Galileans, as in Matthew's Gospel, in a region where people are farming pigs. If they're farming pigs, we can assume very confidently that they're not faithful Jews. And yet Jesus casts out a legion of demons for this individual. And this occurs earlier in Mark's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel to the um, passage that we just heard. Similarly, the healing of the centurion servant is healed by Jesus. And uh, the Roman officer whose who servant is healed by Jesus, um, according to some of the Gospel accounts, it seems to be a healing at a distance. Clearly, Jesus is reaching out in this way and healing Romans as well. He's not prejudiced towards Gentiles. And lastly, an interesting example from chapter 12 of John's Gospel. Not long before Jesus is crucified, this is after, this is an event during Holy Week, after he's entered Jerusalem on Sunday, the triumphal procession, a number of Greeks come approaching Philip, looking to meet Jesus. And Philip goes against Andrew, and they both go and tell Jesus. And Jesus' comment at the time is interesting. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. At this point, when the Greeks come to him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if he is prejudiced towards Gentiles, it's hard to understand why he would say this at this particular time. And then he goes on in verse 32 to say, But I have lifted up on the earth with all peoples, all nations to myself. And this prompted by Greeks looking to meet Jesus. So Jesus clearly isn't prejudiced against Gentiles. So what are we to make of this particular passage? Well, to begin with, I think it's useful to look at the language a little bit more closely. Now, bear with me. We're going to delve into a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Hebrew, and even a little bit of Syriac Aramaic. So, take it slowly. So, to begin with, the usual word in Greek for a dog in the Bible is variously pronounced as kuon, kion, or kion. Now, Chadwick, I remember never in the week, so the consensus is that kuon would usually be the consensus pronunciation. But we do get the words cynic for philosophers like Diogenes from the same Greek root. And also prehistoric mammals like Sinoanathus and Atrasopraxus, again from the instance of a subtile pronunciation. But if we take it as kuon for the moment, let's agree on that. Now, that's the word that you find for dogs in most places in Greek in the New Testament. Generally speaking, it can often be a wrong derogatory term. The most extreme example of this is called Revelation 22, reading from verse 15. It describes exopoi kunes, outside of the dogs, describing then a whole list of sinners who are left outside the New Jerusalem. So dogs are described in those terms, period people at the time didn't necessarily always be God's favorite. Sometimes I mention neutral terms. If you look at one of the Deuterocanonical books, which we Presbyterians would necessarily include in our kind of scripture, but Catholics and Eastern Orthodox would look at Tilbush and describes a dog of pet, who, along with an angel, accompanies Tobias on the journey. So sometimes dogs were very to be as pets, but 
in Revelation chapter 22, clearly it's used as a derogatory term. The term that Jesus uses, however, is a little bit different. And this isn't reflected in the vast majority of our translations. It's something called Cunerion in the singular, or Cunaria, as Jesus uses it here. This describes the little book, it's a diminutive form. Now, there's only one English translation I've been able to find where it says the little book, and that's the amplified by it. A French Bible, the Tradition of describes the Petit Chien. But the vast majority of translations don't reflect this subtle but significant difference. And this is an example of the type of dog that probably was in this at the time. This is a, a breed called a Canaan dog, Kela Kanami. This is an ancient breed, and you can see the difference there between the dog and the pups. The dog that might be viewed as a cur, and the term that Jesus is using, and the woman is responding with, is really the puppies. The conversation Jesus has with this woman, we don't know what language took place in. She's described in Mark chapter 7 as being Hellenes, which is variously translated as a Gentile or a Greek. So it's possible they were having this conversation in Greek. If so, that, that distinction remains between a Canaria, the, 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 dog, the pup, little dogs, or um, a cur. What about if they were actually having a conversation in Aramaic instead? Now, I'm not an expert of any means in Syriac Aramaic. This is the word for dog in Syriac Aramaic, Ka'alba. If, for sake of argument, they were speaking in Syriac and Aramaic, that word is very similar to the Hebrew word, Kele. Kele means dog. Now, Kele, the same three letters, Kaf, Lamed, and Bet, these are also used in the name Kale, which we in English would pronounce as Kale. Same three letters. Take away the uh, nicknut, the, the pointing, the digesh that's in the letter cap, and you have essentially the same word. Caleb's name means a dog. Now, here I'm going to enter into admittedly a little bit of speculation, but bear with me. Caleb, who's the most famous Caleb in the Bible? Probably one of the twelve spies that was sent to explore the promised land. Caleb, Bar Jephuna, Ha Pinitzi. Caleb, Son of Jakuna, one of the Kenizites. Now, Caleb is described uh, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 6, as being the spy who is representing the tribe of Judah. But, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 12, he's described clearly as a Kenizite. Okay? He's representing Judah, and yes, yes, he's a Kenizite. Who are the Kenizites? Well, we had earlier, during the baptism, one of the readings regarding God's covenant with Abraham. If you go back, that was in chapter 17, if you go back to chapter 15, you have a list of the nations that are in Canaan, that is the promised to Abraham, and the Kenizzites are one of them. The Kenizzites are one of them. So how is it that Canaan, who is a Kenizzite, is representing Judah? So if you have a Greek term like cunaria, cunarion in the singular, that's describing a little dog, and if you translate that into Hebrew, what you get, and the Aramaic would be very, very similar, you get ger-kelebim. Imagine a grabbing dog that's easy to remember. Ger-kelebim. These are essentially 
the cubs or whelps of a dog or the cubs or the whelps of Caleb. So there's different layers going on here to explore the different languages. Caleb, who is a Kenizzite, one of the people to be displaced by Israel, is nevertheless representing the tribe of Judah and therefore an ancestor of Jews. So this is interesting, this is intriguing. But nevertheless, we still have a problem. Dog is still a derogatory term. So how are we going to get around this in understanding this passage? One way is to also look at something else that we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus' incredible powers of perception. If you look at the story of the paralyzed man being lowered through the roof, in Matthew chapter 9, and you see the same, we're, we're essentially the same references in the other gospel accounts, but in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, we read how Jesus perceived their faults and said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? This is what he said to the scribes who were already sitting down in a very crowded house. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Jesus perceived what they were thinking. And later on, we also read in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, how Jesus knew what they were thinking. This is referring here to the Pharisees this time. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were thinking. And again, in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus didn't need anyone to testify to him regarding people, regarding humanity, because he already knew humanity inside out. So Jesus already has incredible powers of perception. John Bell of the Island of Fiji, when he was commenting on this passage in the form of a drama, suggests that when Jesus is saying things like, I have come only to the lost sheep of Israel, and it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, that he's probably voicing the prejudices of the disciples rather than necessarily saying, this is what I believe. Voicing the prejudice of the disciples and teasing out of the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, her faith, so that it performs an object lesson to the disciples. We go back to the earlier part of the Gospel reading that we had, concerning theme and unclean, that which defiles and that which doesn't defile. Now, if we look at this, what's the connection with this particular passage? Jesus is describing how particular foods that people might eat aren't really what makes them unclean, but it's rather what comes out of their mouth instead, what they say, their actions. That's what makes a person defiled or unclean. If we look at Acts chapter 11, this is after Peter has passed his vision of a blanket being lowered with various types of foods that will be clean and unclean for Jews. He describes his actions in Acts chapter 11, but then visits Cornelius later on and has to give a defense of this to the disciples. Now, to each food that was unclean would have been really, really offensive to the Jew. And still, it would be today. Many of you might be familiar with the list of unclean and clean animals in Leviticus chapter 11. 
And you probably also be familiar with the beginning of the book of Daniel, how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or to get their original Hebrew names, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, how they would rather become vegetarian than eat the food that is offered to the Babylonian princes for fear that they might be eating unclean animals or food with blood in it still. To show even more strongly how offensive this is, we're going to refer again to one of the Deuteronomical books, this time in 2 Maccabees, chapter 7. We have a description of seven different sons who are tortured horribly rather than poor. So little wonder then that the disciples say to Jesus how the Pharisees were so offended by the suggestion that what we eat isn't what defiles us. But listen now to what Peter says in Acts chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it, and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice stood from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea, stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your older household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, it's interesting, in both Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7, this section of Jesus' teaching about clean and unclean comes immediately before his encounter with the Syrian Phoenician woman. Let's look at this story now in a little bit more detail. Firstly, 
the Muslim brother at the start, said how Jesus called her a dog. Well, he didn't actually direct it. You look at the text more closely. Jesus doesn't turn to her and address her as a dog. Instead, he called her brother obliquely refers how it's wrong to take children's food and give it to the little dogs, the puppies. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 7, he says a little bit more uh, at this point. He says, it's, let the children eat first. Priority. Let the children eat first. For it is wrong to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, the children's bread and give it to the dogs. So there's a statement of priority here. We see this reflected as well when Paul is writing to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles or Greeks, depending on any translation. So it's a statement of priority. But in the first part, where we're describing the theme and theme, both Matthew and Mark make it very clear that the disciples did get it. Just like in last week's passage, where we're discussing why Jesus might have walked on water, the disciples didn't get it. So what does Jesus do? He takes them way out into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Why does he do this and then say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? Why does he bring them there? He was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, it's a statement of priority. He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, the disciples were then to bring the gospel to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. But Jesus, as you can see, was already reaching out to Gentiles in a number of different contexts. And if we look at this passage here, we clearly see the connection between clean and unclean food. Mark says Jesus was carrying all foods clean in his commentary on Mark chapter 7. But it's clearly a connection here between clean and unclean food and peoples who are viewed as clean and unclean as well. The Gentiles would be seen as unclean, such as Jews couldn't associate with them. And that's why Peter has to give us a defense for his meeting with Cornelius. There's clearly a connection between the two. And this has relevance for us today, a remarkable relevance, particularly in the service where we have baptism. <coughs> we read earlier the passage from Galatians chapter 3, where verse 28 says, There is no difference between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. All are one in Christ Jesus. If it wasn't for these kinds of events, the gospel would be open to us, it would only be open to Jews. To say Messianic Jews, those Jews who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, Yeshua and Mashiach. It is because of these things that the gospel is open to all of us. And yet Jesus seems to be holding up this Syrian woman, this Hellenist, a Greek woman, or a Gentile woman, a woman from Canaan, as an example to his disciples of faith. <coughs> we can sum up. With a few words we gave you the letter P, how she's an example. First of all, she is persistent. The disciples are asking Jesus to send her away. She is, as I put it in the title of the sermon, doggedly determined. She is really persistent. Also, she is penitent. She says to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. She's not saying, I deserve to have my little girl healed. She is penitent. 
She exalts her pious, respectful reverence towards Jesus. She calls him the son of David in Matthew's account. Where have we heard that title again? We'll hear that again in the triumphant entry to Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David, the people cry, as they also then cry out, Baruch Hadashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, version from Psalm 118. So she is pious, penitent, and very persistent. And Jesus rewards her faith, holds her up as an example, a Gentile being held up as an example to his Jewish disciples. In considering also how she might be an example to us, I'm going to show a clip from Sister Barbara Hesson, one of the Dominican sisters in Grand Rapids, which is a little bit provocative. Today in our time, there are still many long-held beliefs, traditions, and vying prejudices about the role, the place for women in church and society. Gratefully, there are among us women who have the intestinal fortitude to confront these prejudices, to question these traditions, and to demand change. I think they're the Syrophoenician women of our day. But I ask, are there leaders who, like Jesus, can allow their minds and hearts to be open to hear the truth coming from the mouths of these courageous women? So, who are the Syrophoenician women today? Who are the men who are prepared to listen to them like Jesus? I'm going to close with a drama. I'm going to ask Holly McCormack, I said, to come up. This is a particular dramatic monologue written by a Lutheran, the United States young Lutheran woman called Judy Stecker, which describes the story of the Syrophoenician woman and interrelates the two parts of the Gospel reading that we had earlier today. See, earlier in the year, you say, dramatic monologue about the woman in the well, and this one follows a very similar story. So, hand over to Holly and let the woman have the last word. I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman who they say is unclean. I avoid you in the street if I touch you through the coil, and you can't even see that I'm a person too. I'm a person who is so much more like you, because clean and unclean may not mean what they see. This demon in my child has ripped us apart, cursing, beating, swearing, tearing, condemning, hating, shouting, doubting. I have prayed and I have paid in every way you could imagine. But this spirit wants my daughter and shows no sign of release. They say that you have healed others. You can remove the leopard spots and make a paralyzed man get up and walk. And give a withered hand, wither hand in your life and stop bleeding, being and strife. And I heard you heal a man who was unclean, just like us. And we can't tell where we come from. We don't know why we weren't chosen. But we know what we deserve to be loved like the rest. Because clean and unclean may not mean what they see. They said that you would come to this house, close the curtains, lock the door, brush your feet, take some time, take some time just for you. But there's no time for my daughter. How much longer can she bear it? I've sat across the road, hoping, wishing, praying, doubting, needing for you to appear and release us from this pain. So imagine my pain when you brush us off and cast us aside, compare me to the dogs who are in the street where they reside. I will bark, I'll beg, I will I'll beg, but won't bite. I'll take what you give us, crumbs and scratch on the floor, that they would step on, sweep up, throw out, disregard, even ignore. I'll take what you can give us, we haven't got much before, because clean and unclean may not mean what they see. Now there's a change in your eyes, 
I do not fear I bend, affront, insult, taunt. I wait for the cold shoulder I've come so well to know. The one that shows my heart and let my demons, my daughter's demons well. But then you do what I asked. You say my child is healed, that from here you make the demon yield. I want to fight you or to kiss you or to show you what you've done for me and for my daughter on our new life that's just begun. But I can only turn it around. And when I see her, I'm undone. She's smiling, laughing, blinking, talking, doing all the things we've missed. I never saw your face again. But I heard about your words and deeds and the things you did for people like me. So when everyone asks how my daughter got well, I'll tell them what, about the man who knows that clean and unclean may not mean. Thank you, Holly. Let us pray. Lovely Father, we thank you for the example of the Canaanite woman, the Syrian woman. Help us to examine whatever prejudices we might hold within our own hearts. Help us to see others as you see them, with love, with compassion. Thank you, Lord, that your salvation is open to all nations, so that we can proclaim with the psalmist, let the peoples praise you, may all the peoples praise you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your salvation is open to each of us regardless of that necessity. And so we close using the words that Jesus taught us to say as we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, Thank you.